famous uh, Bible stories. Most of us would probably include him in our list of uh, well-known Bible tales. Jonah and the whale uh, has been famous really throughout all of history, not only in the Jewish tradition, but we also see Jonah is mentioned in the New Testament. Several times Christ references the story of Jonah. You might be intrigued to know that within Islam, Jonah is the only one of the minor prophets to be mentioned in the Quran. So he even makes it there. But he's not just a popular story in the ancient world. Uh, Jonah is popular even in our literature today. You might think of the classic Moby Dick, right? Uh, The Jonah story comes up several times there. Not quite as classic uh, or as well written uh, or as, I don't know what it is. I'll turn it off. Uh, Not only well written, but not even really a great plot line, but you have the story of something called Ultra Boy. And Ultra Boy comes from the legions of superheroes. And uh, the Ultra Boy, his name is Jonah. He drives a ship through an alien and gets his superpowers. You haven't missed much if you've missed that movie or uh, Ultra Boy. Somewhere in between those, you have the story of Pinocchio, right? Pinocchio, a large part of that story, he gets swallowed by a whale, and he happens to find his father in there. As I was Googling Jonah and what popular stories came up, it also came up that there is a premium vodka named Jonah and the Whale. This is how the advertisers describe it. A whimsical and childlike look for a premium vodka. Now, I have no idea how vodka and children's stories go together. But if you watch Pinocchio, it kind of explains a lot in there, right? So anyways, uh, it's a familiar story. It has been retold. It's even been repackaged. And uh, in some of the most unlikely ways. Unfortunately, uh, people have looked so hard to see the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. So that last week, that men have looked so hard to look at the great fish, they failed to see the great God. Let's go ahead and turn to Jonah. If you're new to using a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Red Pew Bible with you to find Jonah, one of those tough books in the Old Testament. It's page 774 in the Pew Bible. Past couple weeks, we've been flipping around a ton. This week, you'll be comforted to know that we're going to stay right there in Jonah 1. Leave it open. It'll help you follow along. And let's consider this great God as we read Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the 
God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God does not really pull any punches with Jonah. If you remember from two weeks ago, Jonah was a faithful prophet before this, but now God sends Jonah to the biggest, baddest, meanest city that the world has seen at this point, and Jonah has a message for them to repent and to turn to God. Well, instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah rose to run from God. He rose to run from God not because he was afraid of being derided, not because he was afraid of being persecuted, not because he was afraid of failing even as a missionary. Jonah ran because he was afraid of succeeding, right? He wanted those Ninevites to be destroyed. He did not want those Ninevites to experience grace. Why? Jonah would have said, God, God, remember, they're Gentiles. God, do I have to remind you who the good guys are? It's us, Israel, not them. And at the root of Jonah's disobedience is something that the Bible calls self-righteousness. Self-righteous means that all of us have to feel superior to somebody somehow or we can't live with ourselves. Jonah's particular form of self-righteousness was that he was a racist. It has worked for a lot of people to feel more proud about your nationality, where you're born, your race, your ethnic uh, group. But it's not only the only way to be self-righteous is where you are born or what color of your skin is or what nationality you are. Let me see if I can dig in the trash a little bit just to make sure you pay attention that Jonah relates to me and you. You can and you do Take any particular thing, and you can make it a way to feel superior to somebody else. You can and you do. If you're not a racist or a bigot, you can look down your enlightened nose at all of those that aren't as tolerant as you. Did you know that you can be intolerant to other people's lack of tolerance? If you're liberal, you can look down your nose at all of those that are conservative. If you are conservative, you can look down your nose at all of those that are liberal. You can even feel superior in your pain. Friends, if you are hurting and you have suffered tremendously in life, you can actually feel superior to all those who haven't had it as tough as you. You are so much more deep, 
so much more solid than those people that had a semi-kind, charmed life. If your kids go to public school, you can look down your nose at all those sheltered homeschoolers. If your kids are homeschooled, you can look down your nose at all of those secularized public schoolers. That's just to name a few. In our church, you can even be superior in your thoughts that you take a shower before you go to work to put your shirt and tie on. And other people can look down at people who take their shower after work when they've been in the trades all day. You can be superior about anything. Just look at your kids for a minute. Look at what they compete about, right? That's just a quick list that I came up with. Let me ask you. Where do you feel superior? Do you feel superior in your marriage over your spouse? It's all their fault. Churchgoer, do you feel superior over your brother and sister in your obedience? Are you the older brother in the prodigal son? Jonah is the older brother in the prodigal son. The older brother says, I didn't do that stuff. I'm the good son. And self-righteousness is the last sin to be repented of in a religious crowd. Because you can run from God by running to a church. One of the most clever places to hide from God is actually coming to the house of God. Running is not just the alcoholic, but it is also the Christian who's memorized Bible verses, serves at church, but thinks he or she is better. Hear me, church. Anytime, anyway, you are running from grace. You are running to self-righteousness. You have to prove that what you are doing is better than. And if you feel superior, have you noticed that it prevents you from preaching or showing grace? When you feel superior to your spouse... It is hard to show grace when they mess up. When you feel superior to your siblings, it is hard to show grace as you work together. So how do you show or how do you know if you're self-righteous? Well, just ask yourself, when's the last time you either shared grace with your words or in your works? When's the last time you showed grace in your words or in your works? You see, Jonah had to learn grace before he could preach grace to the Ninevites. He had to learn it himself. So here's the gracious news this morning, but God. Notice first how verse 3 starts. Verse 3 starts, but Jonah. But look at how verse 4 starts. But the Lord. But Jonah arose to flee. Verse 4, but the Lord. Do you see the shift in the text? The God of grace does not give up on self-righteous runaways. That's good news for us, church. A sinful prophet comes face to face with a sovereign God because God does not forsake those who forsake him. And Jonah has to learn two lessons that we all have to learn this morning as God reels in runaways. It's his specialty. He learns that God's sovereignty is unmistakable, and he also learns that God's grace is undeserving. Friends, Jonah has not gotten away. In fact, we're about to see that the world has gotten all too small for Jonah. Because first of all, God is unmistakable in his sovereignty. First, notice that God ruled the storm. Look at where the storm comes from. This is not Mother Nature. The text says in verse 4, the Lord hurled, literally threw a great wind upon the sea. Do you think about God that way? 
Is your God only a therapist who comforts you in the storm, but is not a God who sends you your storm? We don't hide from hard texts because we're not here to play patty cake, right? God sends the storm. He is the originator of this. He didn't merely respond to the storm. He caused it. It was his intent. God supernaturally intervened in the everyday natural forces because they are at his disposal. He is unmistakably sovereign over the wind, and the wind gave rise, it says here, to a violent storm, the mighty tempest on the sea. And these people that were there on the boat, verse 5, these mariners, professional sailors, it says in verse 5, they were terrified. This is their job. They've seen a thing or two. Okay, They know about farmer's insurance. Okay, They've been down this road before, but here the sea is getting more and more rough. And God was going after Jonah, even if he had to destroy the ship in the process. But also notice that not only is God unmistakably sovereign on the sea, God is also unmistakably sovereign on the ship. These sailors were desperate. Verse 5 says that, that each cried out to his own God. They would have been much like our country today. Pluralistic. Any god will do. They probably worship Marduk. They probably also knew of Baal. Local deities, whoever they could appease, that's what they would have gone after. But notice in verse 6, the captain comes to Jonah, who is deep asleep, down, 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 down to the bottom of the ship, down, down, down to a deep sleep. And here he wakes him up and says, would you call on your god? They're just trying to cover all their bases. How can we get out of this? Then what do they do? They then, in verse 7, they cast lots. Come, let us cast lots. This is not the religious casting lots. This is more like superstition. Now, people do not cast lots today. I actually had a little joke with Steve Muzzy and Steve LeClaire. We were driving back or driving up to Loon on Thursday to go skiing through a huge snowstorm. I said, we are casting lots on who is driving home, okay? Because it was just nerve-wracking to drive through that. But people don't cast lots today. Instead, people, well, people don't cast lots today to find out the reason for their storm. People today are more tempted in America to run to astrology. Did you know that astrology is back in vogue? an estimated $2.1 billion for their mystical services. According to Chani Nicholas, an astrologist interviewed recently in the New York Times, the reason people, the reason Americans are running to astrology is this. Hear this quote. People really need to know that there is some reason for this. Why are people running to astrologists? Why are people running to look at the stars? Why do dates begin with what sign are you? It is because every single person who is old enough to consciously think has to ask the question, is there meaning for this? You cannot not ask that question. What is the meaning in this? And even though many of our friends, many of our neighbors, our coworkers, they might deny the existence of God, listen up. Big questions in life don't go away, do they? Notice the sailors ask questions in the storm of life as they are awakened to the judgment of God. They ask in verse 8, right, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? The sailors are asking desperate questions because they're desperate men. 
And faith family, we need to seize the opportunities that these great questions that people are asking us. Why is there a reason that I'm going through this? Why did I lose my job? What about going off my kids? People want to know a reason. And instead of looking to the stars, we want to help them, right, with meekness and fear, look to the God who is the Lord of the land and the sea. Jonah had already told them he was running away from the Lord in verse 10. So Jonah confessed, I worship the God who is sovereign over land and sea. And he tells them, our fates are intertwined because you're on the same boat as me. Right? Their destinies were intertwined with a man who was running away from a sovereign God over land and sea. This is going to be a hard truth to swallow. But if you fall asleep, this is the time to check back in. Your disobedience affects others. Your disobedience affects others. We never sin in private. Isn't it amazing that while Jonah is willing to involve the sailors in his death, they recoil from the suggestion and with courage and compassion do all they can to avoid throwing him to his death. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. What's the application, faith family? The greatest gift you can give anybody is your own holiness. The greatest gift you can give anybody is your own holiness. For, for so many of us, people are dying around us because we are not walking with God, right? Our kids are growing up materialist because why? We're materialist. Our kids are, our kids are growing up knowing the right Sunday school answers, but yet God isn't real to them. Why? Because God isn't real to us. He's more of an idea than a person, more of a concept than a God to be worshipped. Parents, you know how it goes on the planes. you got to put your own spiritual oxygen mask on first before you can help others. Your holiness is the greatest gift you can give our faith family. If you're going to disciple your children, disciple others that you run in contact with, as you are holy, people will follow you. It is the greatest gift you can give us. And so God challenges us here that our disobedience affects others. And instead of passing on the disease of sin, that we be a gift of holiness to one another. Well, God controls even the pagans' superstition, and a lot falls on Jonah. And the sailors now ask in verse 11, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? They didn't know this God, so all they could do was ask the only person who did. Jonah, a runaway, sleepy prophet. Church, the world wants to know, what should we do? What is the reason for this? And I feel that Jonah is asking the American church, are you a runaway, sleepy prophet? You know this God, but you are running away, and you have put yourself down, 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 down to sleep. Jonah, woken up, finally says, well, pick me up in verse 12. Throw me into the sea. It's what God wanted. It's not what the sailors wanted. They were actually afraid that this God was going to punish them. We heard their prayer, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. As soon as they threw Jonah into the sea, the sea grew calm, 
And after that raging storm, they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and they made vows. I mean, isn't Jonah the worst evangelist ever? The worst, okay? I mean, here we learn that we are not saved by the messenger, but we are saved by the message. Chapter 3, we're going to learn that God cares not just about the mission, but the messenger. So don't, don't give up on that yet. But right now, it is as horrible as it is shared, as forced as it is shared. He is almost put into a corner to have to testify about who this God is before he's willing to speak. He is so self-centered. He is so self-righteous. But he finally comes out who this God is, and yet God can still is unmistakably sovereign in the conversion of these sailors. God is sovereign over the waves. God is sovereign over the ship. And finally, God is sovereign over the fish. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now let's get real. To many people, it is impossible, right? Implausible to believe that God would appoint a fish so large that it could swallow Jonah. However, the Bible consistently teaches that God rules over his creation, right? We see it all the time in the Bible. God commanded a donkey to rebuke an insolent prophet. God commanded ravens to feed Elijah. He commanded a cock to crow twice at the denial of Jesus. More than once, Jesus told Peter to cast nets, and the nets were so filled with fish this Lord who commands wind and storm, the Lord who appoints a big enough fish to swallow a human being, I suggest to you a mighty sovereign Lord. He has unlimited power, and so here's the application. Instead of trying to run from him, why don't you call on him? Instead of trying to run from him, why don't you call on him? Friends, do you think for a moment that God can intervene in your circumstances? I was jealous for Pat this morning over praying for you. Not that we don't pray for you during the week, but there's a time when we get to see you face to face. And as a pastor praying for his flock, we know, because our hearts are intertwined, what trials you have as you let them known to us. We care for you, and we know that you walk in here, and there are things that you bring where you are worried about this morning. Think about it right now. What did you come here this morning worried about? The well-being of a family member? Financial insecurity? An ill-defined sense of gloom or depression? Consider again that this God is eager to act. What particular circumstance are you facing today? Call on this God and he will answer. Whether it is the wound in a relationship or it is your concern over your professional progress and your job security, there is a purpose in your storm. Right? And God has unlimited resources at his fingertips. He can control the wind. He can control the cast lots. He can control the faith of the sailors. He can control a big whale all to rescue Jonah, to teach him grace. God can intervene in your life. He's not up there privately lamenting, oh, I wish I could do something for my people, but I just can't. I wish they would smarten up and just do something to help themselves out. No, call on this God. He has the power to work in your particular circumstances. So instead of running from him, learn from Jonah. Call on him. 
Can you really run from an omnipresent God as Don George prayed for us? Can you really run from an unmistakably sovereign God? You get to chapter 3, I've always pictured it, maybe you have as well, that when Jonah finally gets vomited out from the sea, I've always pictured that he just arrives in Nineveh. Have you always thought like that? He's in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, he gets spit out. I always in my head just thought that he arrives at Nineveh. That's not how the Bible words it. Where does he land? We don't exactly know, but God still has to tell him, arise, go to Nineveh. It does not, how is your running away from God working for you? You don't get a pass and skip anything. Jonah just gets to start right back where he was, on a shore, smelling like whale guts. If you're here as a non-Christian, I wonder if you would reconsider that God has even appointed you to be here today. You have come with an earshot of the good news that can save you. What will you do with that message? We would love to walk with you as you investigate the claims of Christ and to see if they are true and what bearing they have on your life. But before you leave, would you know that God has placed you here this morning? The prophet came face to face with the unmistakable sovereignty of God. Have you? Have the dark providences of your life began to make you wake up? How is your running from God working? Here's the second thing Jonah learns. It gets even better. He now learns of God's undeserving grace. I was blessed two weeks ago. I left the service, and George Hunston came up to me, and he said, Josh, thanks for preaching grace. I told it to Pastor Pat. Pastor Pat and I, during the week, in the hallway, you see where we hang out on our video, right? But, but we're hanging out in the hallway, and he goes, I don't think you even mentioned grace in the sermon. I said, I don't think I did either. But it was the theme of the message. It was kind of below the surface. It might have slipped off the hook, so to speak, but George caught it. You could catch it if you understand that grace is not soft and cuddly. We need to redefine our understanding of grace. This story teaches us that God pursuing a runaway is undeserving grace. Jonah is running from God, and God is running after Jonah. Why? Christian, because God hasn't given up on you. Right? He is not running after Jonah like a high school breakup. Oh, please, I'm so sorry. Can we get back together? Oh, I love you so much. Come on, please, please, I need you. I... No, that's not how God's behaving. Remember those days? He is running after him with sovereign love. What does sovereign love look like? Discipline. God loves us so much to discipline us, and God's discipline is undeserving grace. Right? Sometimes God has to send a storm. Sometimes God has to wake us up in our rebellion. I read a commentary a couple weeks ago about an old fairy tale. The old fairy tale goes like this. There was a wicked witch who lived in the middle of a forest, but she had a wonderful bed. And when some kind of wayfaring stranger would come along, she would go to him, feed him, and say, Oh, you can sleep in my bed. It was the most comfortable bed you can imagine. But here's the thing. If you were asleep when the sun came up, you turned to stone. Typical fairy tale, right? But here's the part where I thought was even more wicked in this story. You knew that you were a stone. 
because she lets you have your heart and your soul stayed trapped in there. You were aware that you were one of her statues in her statuary. Well, the witch had a servant girl. And when the next stranger came, the servant girl sees this young man, probably as handsome as Ethan Stratton back then, and she feels sorry for him. <laughs> and so before he goes to bed, she throws thorns and sticks and stones and thistles and all kinds of awful stuff underneath his mattress so he can't sleep. Well, in the morning, he gets up before dawn, before the sun comes. Now, because he had not had any sleep, he is despairing over his day and how hard it's going to be because he's not going to have any energy. You know the feeling? He's grumpy. He's angry. He sees her at the door, and he grumps at her, and he yells at her, and he closes the door and says, what kind of place is this? He walks out. Well, she looks at him. And the servant girl says, yeah, you know, the misery you know now really bothers you because you can't compare it to the misery your comfort would have bought. Don't you see? Those were stones of love I threw in there. People, church members, parents. Parents, don't grow weary of throwing stones of love in your kids' lives. Disciple makers, don't grow weary of throwing stones of love in your relationships. We've been talking about discipleship now for so many years. There is a group of us that have tried to disciple people that have walked away, that have no longer wanted to meet with us. Maybe even have left this church and left church altogether. There's enough of us that sometimes we kind of despair and say, look at my track record. I mean... I'm not walking with the Lord. Should I take somebody else on? Who am I to disciple somebody? I've been willing, Lord, but who's still growing? Don't grow weary of throwing stones of love in there. Spouses, oh, as we disciple each other, don't grow weary of throwing stones of love in there. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and see the New Testament version of this. Hebrews 12, verse 7. It is God's undeserving grace to discipline us. Hebrews 12, 7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his what? Holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's God's grace. The reason God sends those storms into your life is because they are sticks and stones of love. God shows undeserving grace, not in a cuddly blanket to let you just go down, down, down to sleep, but in a storm showing us that he pursues runaways with sovereign love. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. 
God doesn't let his children sin successfully. God doesn't let his children sin successfully. There is always love under the waves. If you're as a non-Christian, my dear friend, Christianity is not the sticks and stones you think it is. Oh, it's so constraining and confining and I have to love one another I have to forgive as Christ has forgiven me and I have to join a church and participate and serve the Lord and oh there's even this thing about giving of my time and my talents and my treasure oh no have you ever thought that maybe it's not what God wants from you maybe it's what God wants for you oh there's freedom the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I just happen to know how your life is supposed to go because I'm the creator, sovereign God of your life and you're made in my image. So align yourself with me and enter into the joy of your master. Right? My non-Christian friends, you might think Christianity is a poison, but wake up. It's life itself. Eternal life. Why is it eternal life? Well, because... After Jonah, there was another prophet. There was another prophet who was thrown into a storm. However, this prophet was greater than Jonah, and he wasn't thrown in because of his disobedience. He was actually thrown into the storm because of his obedience. It was actually God's plan for this prophet to go through the storm of God's wrath so that all who would trust in him would have peace. Not peace of the waters, but eternal life and peace, which is why we read in the New Testament, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. My Christian and non-Christian friend alike, there is no refuge from this God. There is only refuge in this God. Stop running from him and run to him. Call upon this God and you will be saved. Next week, in, well, not next week, Pat gets one more week in Jonah 1 to look at it from another angle. But then Mike Hodge preaches on Jonah 2, and it ends with the climax of the book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we look back over our week, as we scan even our day, would you reveal to us where we are attempting to run from you? Lord, we don't have to just run physically away. We can run into the dark closets of our heart, close the door, and seal everyone else out with our silent treatments, with our hard-heartedness, our cold shoulders. God, it is so much easier to avoid, to sweep under the rug, to go somewhere else, to change jobs, move churches, all to run away from what you're calling us to do. Lord, we, we struggle to take you at your word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and to obey what you have to say, what we clearly know, and to believe that it is truly life, that it aligns with how we are made, that it is the perfect and pleasing and acceptable will of God Lord, forgive us for how we doubt it. Forgive it for how we take your creation, us, made in your image, 
and we use it to raise our fists against you and to run away. We take our life and our breath and we, we do our own thing. We take the abilities and we want to claim superiority and self-righteousness to prove ourselves are better than somebody else when you gave it all to us. Father God, what grief is yours to see how your creation uses all of your things against you. What grief is yours that you had to stoop down to die in our place. God, we pray that we would consider this great God, this sovereign Lord, and your undeserving grace that we would run to you. The only thing that we would meet on our road back to you is a father with open arms because Christ was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. Thank you that we can return as the prodigal son. We pray that you'd prevent this church from being the older brother. God, we just ask that you would continue to open our eyes to how we can have sticks and stones of love in our ministries. Lord, we thank you for the college students and the young adults and the careers that you are bringing to this church, and we pray that you would open our eyes to how we can have sticks and stones of love to help push them on to holiness. We thank you for a great youth group last week with the Why Now and and what you're going to do this week through the teens you've entrusted into our care. And we pray that we could use sticks and stones of love to see them push on to Christ-likeness. We pray that we wouldn't grow weary as disciple makers. We we thank you for the gift of Sunday school teachers that that help us. And we thank you for the gift of small group leaders that want to shepherd us. And we pray that we would receive the sticks and stones of love as just that grace knowing that we all get a hard heart, knowing that we all want to run away, that we all think running is easier. God, we pray, Lord, that we could also be an encouragement to our missionaries who are out there on the front lines, in the field, who often don't have a church family to walk with. We pray that we could love on them, that we could join hands with them, not to send checks, but that we would love them enough to help them realize that they matter to the Lord, that the mission is not as important as the messenger. We thank you that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. There's grace. We pray for our missionaries not to feel that they're just some little pawn uh, in God's great chess game, but that these missionaries would realize that God loves them, and he loves them just as much as he loves Nineveh. He wants Jonah to bring that message to Nineveh because he loves Jonah, and he wants Nineveh to hear it because he loves Nineveh. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes, that you would give us love for our fellow workers, that we'd link arm as ambassadors in Christ, that we'd get busy doing the work, that if we remain here in the flesh, that we know that fruitful labor is needed of us. We know that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. We know that to be here in the flesh is necessary for each other, for your progress and joy in your faith. Praise Lord. God, we ask that you would help us to give each other joy in our faith, to keep running this race. We would not grow weary in doing good. And we do it all by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Our next song can be a prayer. If you